So uh, I am a physical therapist, and uh, because I think most people, when they meet me, can't pronounce my name, my patients call me Dr. Kate. I think it's endearing. And I am a pain educator, um, and that was a credential uh, available here at this conference. It's suspended right now, so if you're interested, definitely look into the CPE. Um, it's a great certification to have, a great cred credential for me, um, but they're in suspension, so you can't get it right now. But stay, stay in limbo, hang out if you're interested. So the only conflicts of interest I have to disclose, the main one is the middle one. The bottom one is not really one, but I do work for the federal government, but what you hear me say here today is not the official position of the Department of Veterans Affairs. It's all based on things that I have read and learned and tried and clinical experience and experience as a human. And uh, I do try very hard to use copyright, uh, pictures that are not copyright protected. So I mostly source pictures from Pixabay, although there are some in this slide deck that I didn't get from Pixabay, so I can't be 100% sure that they're not copyright protected. But I'll tell you when those slides come up. So if you try to reproduce any of this, it's on you then, because I've told you. Um, but the last thing that I'm going to uh, say about my disclosures is that I am a convert. I am a physical, a th physical therapist, and by training, you have to appreciate what we go through for PT. My first week of school, first of all, we have this list of required materials to purchase and reading lists and whatnot, and there's a thing called the flexible ruler. Who knows what that is? Flexible ruler, anyone? A couple of you. If you don't know what it is, it's exactly how it sounds. It's this stiff but pliable ruler. And we were trained in posture assessments. That's how they do it. They teach you to appreciate spinal curvature and angles of curve and use a ruler to measure it. And then we do a whole lot of posture education. And while that has plenty of use in pain and, and pain treatment, I no longer can actually say that posture is something we have to fix in order to fix pain. Because I know it's not true and research doesn't actually substantiate that either. Uh, I've also had to rearrange my thinking on things like back pain and, and things that physical therapists are really heavy-handed at, like core stabilization. So I encourage you to stick around the whole day, because Jared Hall is here too. Dr. Hall does a lot of work um, in trying to change how we conceptualize pain, and I appreciate that. So he has a great talk on core stabilization later today. Uh, and so I've had to challenge my beliefs, and I would hope that after you hear me talk, you start to challenge your own beliefs, because clinician bias is really... It's based in human bias, and that's all based on our own experience of our bodies, what we think about patients, what we've collected over our life, and that can have a direct and often harmful impact on the patients we work with, and that's what this talk is about. So I hope to review research regarding language choice in particular, but also things like beliefs uh, and expectations and how those can have a direct impact on clinical outcomes. Uh, I'd like to give you some alternatives. That's the final uh, objective here. I want you to walk away having some things you can say differently or at least starting to think differently about the words you use all the time and whether they may have a positive or a negative impact on the people you care for. And I do hope to explain um, specifically within the context of patient-provider interactions. Of course, expectations, beliefs, and communication have so many implications in society in general and, and your lives as people um, outside of your lives as clinicians. But specifically, as it relates to patient-provider interactions, we hold a lot of power. And we need to remember that. We hold a lot of power. And our beliefs can directly have an impact on outcomes for our patients, regardless of the intervention you're recommending. It's pretty wild. 
So I want to credit Jason Silvernail as one of the people who started getting me thinking differently. He's um, an active duty officer in the Army, and he works at Walter Reed. He's now pretty high up in administration and policy, which is awesome because he's a really critical thinker. And you can find some things out there using this catchphrase, crossing the chasm. And we don't have to do things differently. We all have a lot of training. We all have a lot of years of experience, I'm sure, even if you're just a few years out of school. Nowadays, to get a degree in higher education or higher clinical work, you have to go to school for a long time, and you have to pay a lot of money in this country to do it. And so we're invested, and that's also why beliefs are difficult to change. So uh, that doesn't mean after today you have to change everything about how you do what you do. You do it well. I know you help a lot of people. I helped a lot of people before I knew what I was saying was probably harming some other people. And uh, pain care is now really in the spotlight. So I think there's a lot we can do to affect the disability rates worldwide. I think there's a lot we can do to help impact the impairments your patients working with right now are having because of pain, simply by changing how we think about things and talk about them. I'm going to leave this here if that's all right. It's my timepiece, so I stay on track. Uh, so you don't have to go back to school and get new training. You just have to maybe challenge yourself in how you think about pain and how you talk about it with patients. That's what I hope to accomplish today, is get you thinking differently and maybe give you some phrases in how to speak differently to patients because it can have a real positive impact. And unfortunately, it can have a negative impact too. So I worked with a student last year and her favorite phrase with patients was, did you know that the placebo effect has an evil twin? It's called the nocebo effect. A lot of people don't know what that is. But it's a thing, right? There's plenty of robust research about the placebo effect, and the opposite is possible too. So expectations shape outcomes. They can predict outcomes. They have real physiological impacts on our system. And that works in two directions, positive and negative. I'm sure everyone here has some appreciation for the placebo effect, and we try to harness that whenever we can in therapy in particular, and you might not even know you're doing it. You know, just having therapeutic alliance can, can make or break the outcomes no matter what you do. And there was a great talk yesterday on back pain and the APS track that really got down to the nitty-gritty on therapeutic alliance, and I thought it was really important. So, oh, I want to make one uh, more point on this slide. So uh, I've worked along the care continuum. I'm currently uh, at the downstream end of things, what we call in my health system the tertiary level. That means that everybody's done everything before getting to me. So uh, I've worked at the front end of things in the ICU and in acute care and post-operative recovery and rehab and long-term rehab. And anywhere along the care continuum, we have an opportunity to change the way people think about their bodies and improve their positive outlook on their recovery. And specifically, I want to point out back pain in post-operative care because we have this window of time to shape people's beliefs right after they've had surgery, certainly long before they get surgery, but we have lots of opportunities along the care continuum to change the way th people are thinking about their body and how they think about their pain. And I work now in a place where people have had pain for 10, 15, 20 years, and many of them have had more than one back surgery, and they continue to use log rolling because someone somewhere told them they have to do that after surgery. And nobody ever untold them that. Or if they did, it was just too ingrained as a protective habit, and they thought they had to keep doing it. And that is an example. 20 years out, you don't need to be so protective, even if you have a lumbar fusion. 
And we're going to talk a bit more about provider beliefs around back pain specifically. So I want to plant this seed. Uh, there are a number of physical therapists at the conference this year, and I'm thrilled about that, but we're still not nearly as well represented as we should be in a multidisciplinary conference like this. Because I'm sure people, who's in primary care in the room? Who's in primary care? Good. Love you. You have a really hard job to do. And I appreciate that. Eight minutes is probably generous nowadays for what you get every patient interaction. But I'm sure you refer to physical therapy. Show of hands who refers or recommends physical therapy. Good. Do you know what we do? Fabulous. Probably because you're the type of people that come to this conference. But the vast majority still don't know what PTs do, right? That's my experience. I ask patients. Uh, if, I'm, if I'm ever in the position where I see them the first, I'm the first PT to see them, oftentimes they don't really know what they're in for. But many other times they say, I've been there, done that, it just hurt me, why am I here again? So how you actually pitch any modality can make a huge difference in whether or not it works. And there are little tiny ways, little micro-expressions that we use to sell something so I would encourage you to, to talk to your local rehab specialist and get a better sense of what they do and maybe get to know their personality. So if somebody that you're treating really could benefit from movement therapy and re-engaging in that aspect of care, but they're really afraid of it and they had a bad experience before, get to know your local people and sell them. Say, you know, I know John and he's really great. He's different than what you saw before and give them another chance, right? Because if they come into anybody's office expecting that what they're about to do won't help, then it won't help. That's I mean, it sounds simple. It's simple and very complex at the same time. Now watch out for these little bombs that your patients are going to lob out at you in your office. This is part of the training that I put my students through when they come through internships with me. They get judged on whether or not they can catch those little phrases that people are saying that, that help us understand what their belief system is all about regarding their own body. So if, you, if your patient is using language, for example, why do you think you hurt? I ask every person I see. Why do you think you still hurt? Ah, it's probably because I did a lot of manual labor and I just wore out. That's so common. And I work with veterans, and so more often than not, they're thinking the basic training did them in. And there's a really robust 14,000 people, soldiers, um, Navy SEALs, put people through medical imaging before and after a 16-week intensive spinal loading training pro protocol, and there was no appreciable change in their MRI findings after that. We know adaptations occur in the spine with load and in every other joint, but we cannot confidently say, nor should we be saying, that X causes Y. They might relate to each other, but careful, right? And if people think the wear and tear that happened years ago or the normal changes because of aging are really the cause for their pain, it's more complex than that, and we should all really be um, knowledgeable of this so we can correct some of these beliefs that our patients are coming into the office carrying around with them. This is one of those slides where I'm not sure if this is copyright protected or not, but I think it's an important image. Who has a spine image with a little bubble you can splooge out? Anyone? Own it. Nice. <sighs> All right. I, I have a sp one spine model in my office, and this is another way I have converted how I practice, because the more I know, the more responsible I feel for somebody's beliefs, and therefore I see everything as a potential danger cue in my office including spine models. So you know how those standard spine models, they have the little sploogy red thing coming out at the back? I cut mine off. And there was a campaign, how, how many years ago, Renee? There's a PT up front here. Five, maybe five years ago, Adrian Lowe was, was trying to get people around the globe to send in their little doodads, the little spine discs that were splooging out. And he made chain necklaces out of them. It was hilarious. 
The point is, just that visual cue gives us an image, and now we're stuck with that image, so we think, when I bend forward, I got a jelly donut, and it's going to pinch my nerve, right? And that's not how we work. That's anatomically not how things work. We never, ever have this little bubble, like a, like a frog throat. That's not how it goes. But this image is strong, and it's powerful, and it makes people think that their backs are vulnerable and fragile and insecure in there. And just the word stability, you'll hear later on, could be problematic, because what does it imply? That you need support from the inside, that you're unstable, that things are slipping around. And that's the language that you're going to hear from patients if you listen for it and you ask them what they think is causing their pain. Now, I'm not saying that biomechanics doesn't matter. It does, but not nearly to the degree that we think, not nearly to the degree that I was trained to believe. And so check yourself. Where do these beliefs come from, and what are we doing to perpetuate them? Jelly donuts. That is not a copyright-protected image. You can use that one. Right. Uh, when my clinic, um, the, my colleagues and I who work together in the clinic, when we started to really reshape our language many years ago now, we're all on the same page with this now, and it took a lot of time to get there. We're, we're almost all there. Right? Uh, but I, I'm still tickled by this experience that a psychologist buddy of mine across the hall, we're co-located, it's really lovely, but after we were talking about the ways that patients describe their own pain conditions in their body parts, one of these days she ran across, she said, oh my gosh, my, he did it, he stood up and he, and he told me why he thinks he, he's hurting his back because he's got a jelly donut and it just squirted a little bit. <laughs> this is what people think and it's very scary. It's very scary if you think that you're that vulnerable inside and our body will do things without our conscious awareness to protect based on that thought and that image. And if you don't know it's happening, you won't know that the things you say could be feeding into that, or the little gestures you make with your face when someone shows you their MRI and you say, whoa, don't do that. Don't do that, right? So how about MRIs, medical imaging? Here's one thing I challenge you to do. If you have the capacity to change how your medical system or your hospital group administers or, or delivers information about medical imaging, think about these two studies I'm going to talk about in a little bit more detail, because we can implicitly start to change people's beliefs and give them some information that might, in fact, turn the tide a little bit. And if we're just talking a couple of knots to a new direction, that might not feel like a lot in the moment, but to a big ship, it ends up somewhere completely different in the end, right? So a couple of knots difference can really make a big difference in the long run. So these two studies are nice, 2012 and 2013. They're both longitudinal, and they both are pretty robust. So 100 participants here, 237 over here on the left. And they, do, they did two different things. They have um, McCullough and that group. All they did was include a statement about normal demographics, normal findings, epidemiological findings in people who are asymptomatic. This many percentage of people have this scary thing in there, and this many percentage have that scary thing. They just put normative data at the bottom in a statement, and then had the regular radiology reports on top, the kind of medical jargon that we're familiar with. The other group, they reworded. They actually reworded. I'll give you some examples in a few slides. They reworded the, the reports. So it didn't have medical jargon in it, or very, very little. So it's easy to read for the layperson. And look at this. If you're in, interested in reducing opioid use in your patient population, try this. Just add this demographic 
um, epidemiological data at the bottom of an MRI report and see what happens because this group found that the statement group, they sent out these radiology reports with and without the statements, and the people that got the statements were less significantly less likely to receive narcotics. That also means they weren't asking so much for them, perhaps. I, I, the, the study doesn't say exactly what the factors were, but that was the result. And here, people are much more satisfied and they have a better emotional response if we're not using medical jargon. And that seems pretty straightforward, but it can make a big difference in someone who has a high anxiety profile or prone to depression, right? So those psychosocial factors are really important. So here's an example of the epidemiology data that was included. And if you can't see that, you have it on your app, I'm sure. You can download the PDFs. So I'm not going to read through that. And this is an example of how that report was reworded away from medical jargon and towards something a little more patient-friendly. So the medical jargony stuff is up at the top, and I have to tell you, even with my training, and uh, I have a doctorate degree, and we're anatomical specialists. That's what PTs do, musculoskeletal specialists. Um, when I went to grad school at Washington University in St. Louis, and we were interfacing with medical students, they were astounded how much training we had in anatomy PTs, right? So we love our anatomy. But I can't make heads or tails of some of this stuff. So this is going to patients, right? Uh, but if you reword it, something as simple as rotator cuff biceps tendinopathy. Tendinopathy might be a problematic word. I don't know. It depends on who's reading it. With some thinning of the infraspinatus, but no defect and, catch this, healthy muscle. How many times do they actually mention the healthy stuff? Novel, right? So this is one of those slides that I'm not sure about all these images, but I think it's important. Um, this is something you can find in, for free online uh, sort of rehab home exercise program generators. And this is something I wanted to highlight because that log rolling training that all PTs are appropriately doing post-op day one, day two, day three for a spine surgery, that's great in the short term. but what are we doing to educate in the long term about renormalizing recovery of movement? It is not standard of care to refer to physical therapy after a spine surgery. And I'm not saying that it needs to be, but because these people who might fall through the cracks, who have high anxiety, who have high fear avoidance, who have maybe high catastrophizing, they're the vulnerable folks, and you won't know them necessarily when you see them. You don't know till later when they come to my clinic downstream. And then it's a mess. It's really hard to undo. And the patients we work with do well. By and large, they do well, but it's a tremendous amount of work on our part to help people reshape their beliefs and, and really consider their bodies robust again. So we have a lot of beliefs in society. I teach a body mechanics course. And in my body mechanics course, we do not have right way, wrong way. I do not use that language. I used to. I don't now. But I do a little demonstration. I pick up a, a trash can, and I say, what do you think about this? And half the time, I get, oh, from patients. And I say, why'd you do that? Some of them say, that hurt my back. <laughs> and Dr. Mackey makes a point of this in his brain imaging studies. You can actually demonstrate that we have an activation of the pain signature in people when you see other people move, if you have a history of back pain. And a, gr a group in Japan in 2011 published a great study on this. Just seeing people bending over can cause your back to hurt. This is not made up, and it's not all in our heads. It's just how our protective systems work. So I don't teach this, but our society does. I teach how do we get more options in movement? How do we find the things that are hard and get more creative so you can actually complete the task with less pain and build some self-efficacy? Because that loss of control when pain is in the driver's seat is really what erodes people's function and their independence and their ability to feel like themselves, their identity, their social role in the household, like the chore distribution, right? If they're not able to take out the trash, not only does it upset them, it upsets wife or husband, 
you know, dogs might get into it, get sick, and you know, a number of things. All right, so text neck, anyone hear about that? Text neck, oh, scary sounding thing. <laughs> Chiropractor actually coined, he, tra he trademarked that term. So I'm using a trademarked term right now, text neck. And I wonder about, and uh, I believe that there is perhaps still a nursing mother in the room. I don't know what, there's a woman in the back. What about nursing mothers? Do they have nursing neck? What, what is it about our culture that we try to pin these problems? We pathologize things on normal, regular life activities, and we forget how adaptable and wonderful the body is. So beliefs are huge, and I'm going to spend just a minute on this one. This is a great qualitative, um, or, or Ben Darlow did a lot of work in the beliefs realm for back pain in particular. And this is a really important study because clinician beliefs will have a direct impact on outcomes. So check yourselves. Check your beliefs. I had to do a lot of reframing in my own head, and it's not comfortable. It's not fun to do that. But it's important. I think it's our responsibility as clinicians because we do hold a lot of power and we may not know how much. So across many countries, this is not just a US problem, right? The United, the United States has a pain problem for our population, but so does Australia, so does Canada. So do all the countries with progressive health care. We're all humans after all, right? And what's important here is that healthcare professionals will influence patients' beliefs very directly, very strongly associated. And what's more important at the bottom of the slide, if a healthcare professional is biomedically oriented, right? So we're in the biopsychosocial revival. I say revival because this was first proposed in the 1970s, if you didn't know that. And we're now talking about it again and living it better, and that's awesome. But as Daniel Carr, who was the keynote speaker at this conference in 2012, the first time I attended, uh, as he said at that conference, Biopsychosocial is still 80% bio. And that's important. You have to be able to rule out medical pathology and treatable issues. That's important. But when we're dealing with persisting pain conditions, how important does that remain? But if you still treat people as if they're in an acute Ill, uh, injury recovery stage, then we might be doing more harm than good by telling people to stay off work or telling them to be careful when they pick something up. You gotta lift with your legs and not your back. And I say, why, if it's just an empty trash bin? Honestly, why? Challenge me on that, I'll talk to you after if you really don't agree with that. Back to that instability idea, right? Of course there are people who have instability issues in their back and I, I really value orthopedic surgery, I really do. I just think that we might be assigning blame to things that may not deserve it. And spondylolisthesis is one of those scary, scary terms that Dr. Google makes you think you're, spat, you're, you're just slipping all around in there, right? But a lot of people have it and they don't hurt. And even with flexion extension x-rays, there are some people who don't have symptoms if they're positive and they have some slippage. So it's not a guarantee. It's not fate. And we can't strongly correlate that in this published study. From 2009, it's getting up there in age, okay? But it's important to know that this data exists. And this is a big mess of things, but I want you to uh, just appreciate. So this is data that I, you know, I, I made this graph out of the data that was freely published in a well-known study from 2015. And if I butcher this name, I'm really, I'm really sorry. If anyone knows better, um, Brinkinji, Brinjinki. Anyone speak Icelandic or? 
This group has a tremendous amount of work on the epidemiological data for asymptomatic adults, but they also, it's important to know, they also around the same time published a study about the correlation between MRI findings and higher rates of back pain. So there is a relationship there, but it's important to know that here on this, what we're looking at is age. They sampled uh, over 3,000 people in this research study, and they just did medical imaging on their spines, and they looked at ages 20-year-olds, 30-year-olds, 40-year-olds, 50, 60, 70, and 80, and around age 50, whoa, that's when things get really different, right? So what this little color is, the colors didn't translate very well, that is, I think, disprotrusion, but there are a lot of blue shades here, and that's not how I designed this. It just, it just came out funny, all right? But disprotrusion, that's common. We're going to talk a bit about how that's a normal adaptation, and there's a reason why people can have these and they don't hurt. Because our bodies are really wonderfully designed to just spread out and absorb the, lo the load that we supply them. That's how they're designed. Nobody freaks out about calloused hands because we know what that means. And in the spine, we're still having to adjust to the idea that spine structures also change their shape in response to load. And it's protective, and it's fine. So by the time you're 80, you're weird if you don't have anything in there. And here's the breakdown. You can see the percentage of some of these findings. Right? So I work with a lot of right now on, on, uh, in the group I'm working with, a lot, vast majority are in their 30s. And these are very active men and women. And they get worried about disc bulges. Right? And they might have ridiculous symptoms when the pain started. But by the time I see them, rarely do they still. Or if they do, some of them get MRIs retaken, and they're mad when the disc herniation has receded. Because you know that happens too. In fact, 60% of people who have an acute disc bulge have resolution within nine months. So our bodies are great. They heal. So what are your beliefs? What are your colleagues' beliefs? What are your family members' beliefs about? What's our culture's belief about knee pain and hip pain with body use? All right? How many of your patients say, well, I can't run anymore. I'm wearing out my knees. How many of your patients were told that by other clinicians? Many of mine were told those very things about hips and knees. I wore it out. Remember that degeneration terminology? That's associated with a poor prognosis when people talk that way. And for 20 years, we've known better. <laughs> we've known better. Look at these studies, right? 1998, 1993, they did really nice uh, designs. Nine-year longitudinal study tracking these people. And radiographic OA of the hip was not different between active groups and inactive groups. It's not the activity that's making you more predisposed to osteoarthritis. In fact, how can it be that exercise helps OA if it's causing it? I don't understand, right? But these were not the things that I questioned as a graduate student. It made sense what I was taught at the time. And now I'm rethinking. Running does, is not associated with increased progression or incidence of OA in the knee or the spine. And a study that I don't have included, but it's really nice to look at, there was one published just a couple years ago about intervertebral discs. And the trouble with intervertebral disc research is that it's usually done on bovine spines, the uh, yeah, cadaver spines, right? So it's a failure point, same way we treat our car pieces in the industry, test to failure. It's not the human body. That's not how it works with us. So this study was on intervertebral discs uh, a couple of years back, and it showed that fast walking and slow jogging actually boosts the juiciness, I'm going to use that word, juiciness of intervertebral discs. It helps regenerate all of those nice viscous qualities that we need in our adaptive load bearers, 
right? We need to have those things able to transmit load and deal with it. And running helps improve that. It doesn't cause more problems. There may be other reasons why it hurts to run, and it's complex. And you might not actually get that really good juicy stimulation if you're very stiff and your posture muscles are protective when you're running, okay? So radiographic evidence is really not easy. We can't use that with knees either to predict how people feel. Uh, we had really nice talks this year. Dr. Phil and Jim yesterday morning. Is anyone, anyone at his talk, Dr. Phil and Jim, APS? It was early, I know. Look at the slides. Uh, but he presented really nice data on, on how you can have a really painful knee but systemic changes sensitization quality, and treating the knee may not be really where we have success if it's an upregulation of the central nervous system that's exacerbating pain. So this is why when I was working in the sports medicine clinic early in my career, and our feeder uh, group is an orthopedic surgeon group, our referral source, the, the biggest referral source for us at the time, I would time and time again get these patients in my office confused. They were confused because Doc says I need two new knees, but he says we got to do the left one first because it looks real bad compared to the right, but the right one hurts. The left one doesn't hurt. All right? But we make a lot of judgments based on a picture. And we have more influence than Dr. Google. Believe it or not. I know we all get worried when people look up their diagnoses and they come in asking for specific medications, right? But what you say has a bigger impact for the good or the bad. And it has a lost, uh, lasting impact, too. It's, it's really an enduring impact. And that's why people that I see 20 years out from the onset of their pain remember very specific phrases that were told to them when they first started to hurt. This is something really specific told to me by a patient of mine. I was getting a little puzzled. He was in our intensive rehab program, and he just refused to raise his arms overhead. And when he came to us, we do an assessment on everybody, but he was reporting ankle foot pain and back pain, not shoulder pain. So in my 45-minute assessment, I did not assess the shoulders, because he said back and leg pain is my problem. But then in the midst of this movement program we're doing together over a 12-week program, he time and time again would not lift his arms overhead. And so I got curious. What's that about? And this is what he told me that a physical therapist told him his bones in the shoulder, in the glenohumeral joint, and right across the acromial roof, serrated edges, tearing away at his shoulder muscles every time he raised his arm, and that's what accounted for the sharp stabbing pain that he had. Whether or not that was in fact what a PT told him, I don't know. I do know that with medical records now, I, I, I can go back and look at what patients tell other providers. And I know that it gets skewed. I know what I said and didn't say, and often they say something else to someone else about what I said, which is not accurate. Our brains are always on the lookout for confirmatory evidence for our beliefs, right? So even if you hear a snippet of a sentence, you might distort it. That's how our brains work. So I don't fault anyone there. But this is what's going on. He really thought that he was cutting his own muscles by raising his arms. And it's tragic. Now, this particular patient had a very, very high uh, level of anxiety and OCD, and we actually, we couldn't work together anymore. Not just me, but the whole team. It was, it was really hard and difficult. But this is the kind of stuff that fed into his impairment. Language from clinicians. How the narrative was structured to describe why this man hurts. And that's a problem. So, shoulder impingement. It's a really common diagnosis. There are now pretty uh, large numbers of research studies telling us that orthopedic surgeons like debridements, cleaning things up in there, subacromial decompressions are no better than sham or no better than conservative care. 
And maybe because what we think is going on isn't actually going on. Now, this study I'm going to show you, um, by the way, uh, I made an error in the reference list. This full re reference is not in your list with Millet. So if you want it, email me and I'll give it to you. Um, but what I was taught in school, I'm going to do a little demonstration. Shoulder glenohumeral kinematics was like a whole section. All the nuances of how the scapula moves this way and the humerus moves that way and at 30 degrees it's kind of sloppy, but then there are these ways that we can really easily predict impairment versus normal motion. That's a different conversation, but the principle here with impingement and why people even use that word is in this region of our shoulder, if you don't know the anatomy, it's kind of like we have a little roof with the acromion and we have the ball socket joint underneath there and when we raise arms up, the logical brain says, well, you're hitting, that's why it hurts, you're hitting that roof. And then you take radiographic images and you say you have a type one, type two, type three acromion and the curlier it is, the more likely you're hitting, right? That seems logical. And so then a, a large reason that people get diagnosed with rotator cuff tear is because they take an x-ray with someone at rest and there's superior glide. So we think, oh, no wonder the supraspinatus can't pull the, glen, the uh, um, head of the humerus down into the socket, so it's hitting, and it hurts, and it's impinging, right? That's the thought process. Well, these folks did something very clever. They actually took little markers and put them on the inside on the bony landmarks and then tracked in real time with fluoroscopy, biplanar fluoroscopy. They saw what actually happened, and they had a group of 14 people with known full thickness rotator cuff tears, 14 of those, and 10 people with quote-unquote normal shoulders, no tear. And what they found was there's actually no difference in the group with the tear and without the tear in terms of superior glide if you're actively abducting. And more surprising, the people with the tears had an inferior glide of their humeral head. What? Like the opposite of what we were taught to think. So this just goes to show it's not a very robust study as far as you know, data goes, but it, it's thought-provoking, right? It's thought-provoking. Let's change how we think about the way the human body works. And it's clever. It's really clever. Most posture changes in response to pain, not likely because of it, right? And so that's what the literature says, too. You can't predict posture uh, based on someone's posture. You can't predict whether they hurt or not. And not even if we think you know, over time it's going to catch up with you, right? Mom's in the room, sit up straight or else. Maybe dad's too, if you're, especially if you're a PT. <laughs> Kidding. So there's no predictive value there. And even really longitudinal studies that look at teenagers and then go on to track them in adulthood, people who had bad posture as teens are not more or less likely to have back pain as adults. There are many other factors at work. And uh, how many times have you seen a patient who said to you, uh, I have a leg length discrepancy, I just found that out. That's why my back hurts, right? And i fully guilty of messing around with all kinds of heel lifts and shoe inserts and all of that because logically it makes sense and of course it helps. And so we think it must have been the leg length discrepancy, but did I stop to think that didn't just happen in two weeks? <laughs> Wait a minute. <laughs> But the mechanical unloading does change the proprioceptive input and changes the nociceptive input for a period of time, so we feel better. The system gets novel input, so it feels better. That's the narrative. Not because suddenly your hips can't hack it anymore. That's, that's just not how things work. And this study from 1984 did something clever. They came up with a gadget to, to better measure leg length discrepancy, because I was taught to do it with, you know, a <laughs> tape measure, belly button, Medial malleolus, I, I, I mean, it's crude, right? 
but that's what we were trained to think. And, uh, and they showed that there is actually no correlation between people who hurt who have a true leg length discrepancy and those who don't. It's not predictive. And I have rugby players here because the Hyde study from 2012 took a look at muscular asymmetry, and that's a PT sweet spot, right? Too strong, too weak, too long, too short. That's our bread and butter. And so you walk into the clinic and you hurt, and I do an assessment, and I look at muscle tone and muscle bulk, and I say, oh, you're much bulkier on this side in the paraspinals and your glutes, and clearly that asymmetry is the problem, so let's build up on the other side. And that might help some people, but if you're puzzled why it doesn't help everybody, it's because that's probably incidental and pre-existing. And this, this study was cool because they looked at rugby players, and that particular sport is a power sport. There's a lot of forceful cutting, and so those big muscles around the trunk and core get asymmetrically developed. So they looked at the kickers, and the people, they could not predict just because you had more muscle bulk on one side did not mean you hurt or we're more prone to injury. So we just have to rethink what we're blaming here. And it's not to say that's not valuable to look for those things. It's certainly valuable to try an intervention that changes the body balance for a period of time. But that's not a forever thing. I don't believe it should be a forever thing anymore. And, and I can't practice that way knowing what I know. So I think it's interesting in our society we have this double standard. If you come in with pain, then we blame the asymmetries. But if you're a top performer, then that's an unfair advantage. Usain Bolt, fastest man in the world, he has a true leg length discrepancy. No wonder he's faster than the rest of them. <laughs> and you can see the peak uh, turnover rate of one leg more than the other. It's 14% difference with biomechanics, that's a lot. And he's super fast. And so the news last summer, or maybe two summers ago now, um, Newsweek magazine published this whole article on how unfair this is that he's got this one longer leg so he can propel himself faster. I'm not joking. That's how it is. And this is a, a world um, Olympic level fencer. And if you look closely, his fencing arm that gets used a lot is bulkier because it's a use it or lose it principle. Now, I don't know whether this man has pain, but I'm just pointing out that our culture imposes beliefs on us that we may not be aware of. And if in one context you're going to blame asymmetry for pain and in another context you don't, check that. Right? So looking into adaptation, I think it's really uh, worthwhile to take a look at Katie Bowman's stuff. I'm going to tell you why these orcas are up here. Katie Bowman, K-A-T-Y Bowman. She is a, a biomechanist. That's the way she titles herself. Uh, biomechanist, and basically what she does and what she promotes is movement. But movement from the cellular perspective, that all our tissues at all levels, including the cell, need mechanical deformation in order to get rejuvenation and re revitalization. And movement is important. So take a wild orca compared to an orca in captivity. Did you ever notice that most of them in captivity have the floppy fin? I'm getting a little allergy to the room, sorry. Uh, so orcas don't have bones in there. They don't have any rigid substance in their dorsal fin. But the wild orcas have dynamic influences in their world that are different than in captivity. So when a, when a big fish like this, actually a mammal, to be fair, uh, dives and swims at, at many different depths, the physical properties are different. The angles, the vector forces are very different on that animal, and it shapes the body part. And when in captivity they have one or two options and only one depth range, they don't get that variability. 
So she terms this movement nutrition, which I love and I use it all the time. And with my patients, I say it's movement nutrition. I say, okay, what do we know about the diet and having good nutrition there, right? You might even learn about the anti-inflammatory diet. Who thinks carrots are healthy? Don't be shy. Who thinks carrots are healthy? I didn't ask if you liked them, <laughs> right? Who thinks spinach is healthy? Oh, interesting. Carrots not healthy in this room. All right, is it healthy to only eat carrots and spinach? No-brainer, right? But why do we think that with movement? We need to encourage variety of movement. That's why with my biomechanics class, I, find, I find, figure out options. I try to restore and recover options. You need movement nutrition, lots of variety, different angles, different heights, different vectors for forces to pass through. This is how kids develop hips that have shape that allows them to walk, go from crawling to walking. It's the forces that actually influence the bones and the trabeculae in there that, that shape us. And so if we stop moving, even if you have a patient who's diligently walking, if that person never climbs stairs and never squats down because of pain, that causes problems. And guess what? Our, our system complains. There's really good data to say the less you move, the more you hurt. Our cells are smart and they're trying to tell us, right? So I teach my, my patients the said principle, specific adaptation to impose demand. So those rugby players who have asymmetries in their musculature get that way because they use that side more. Plain and simple. So posture asymmetries have a lot to do with how you use your body. And this is also why you cannot predict pain based on somebody's shape. You cannot look at a math teacher who does this all day and then say, no wonder you hurt. You don't know, did you ask? I don't know. Lots of people don't hurt and their posture looks bad. And I often, in my office, when I'm meeting a person for the first time, I'll be typing and I'm like this, and as we start to talk, and I ask beliefs, and what were you told about your pain? And if you can't see me, you just pretend I'm slouching. You can see that. And I say, what do you think about my posture right now? You think I'm in pain? And they get taken. Just that seed getting planted, just that seed of questioning our thoughts and beliefs about posture. Uh, the truth is, our bodies use the easier posture. There's energy efficiency component here. So it's easier to slouch than it is to sit upright. And what do your patients with back pain do? They're upright. Everyone in the crowd who's slouching, I bet half of you don't hurt. You're comfortable. That's easier. Our bodies are smart, right? And people are trying to get out of pain. And it's interesting, uh, Peter O'Sullivan has a lot of great published research along with other people. He might not be the primary author on this, but Peter O'Sullivan is a thought leader on changing the way we think about back pain. He was one of those authors in the Lancet tri uh, trifecta, <laughs> the Lancet series. Uh, and he's got lots of uh, great data that shows people with back pain, more often than not, especially when there's a high rate of fear associated and low self-efficacy, they have more rigidity and more spinal extension because they have overactive paraspinals. And so you ask those people to work their core more, what's going to happen? Probably not a good thing. So these are some phrases you can use. Motion is lotion, right? Joints love movement. We're lubing them up. The Tin Man had something to, to teach us, right? Movement is medicine. And the American College of Sports Medicine uh, promotes this a lot. There's a website that says exercise is medicine. I personally use movement as a word much more often than exercise because in the people I work with, granted, they all were exercisers at one point. They're veterans. Correction, they weren't all exercises bef exercisers before joining the military, but they're no stranger to exercise. 
And by the time they see me, that can be a bad word. That can be a scary meaning word. It doesn't mean something positive to everybody. But movement is important for life. Exercise can be important for health, no doubt. But you can live a healthy life without exercise as long as you're moving, right? So we're up against a big battle here. As culture changes and as our thoughts are starting to change about pain, as we're rethinking what we're doing for pain, since we know we're not doing a great job as a medical system, pain has gotten worse over the last 30 years, not better in terms of prevalence and impairments. And you know, the Global Disease Burden Report came out last year, and low back pain was in the top five. So something's got to change. And I challenge you each to change your beliefs and your thoughts and how you conceptualize pain and also how you talk about it. Because even though people here are very likely to truly understand the science and appreciate the physiology of psychosocial factors, we're up against 20, 30 years of training by a medical system that was really structurally based. So your patients are going to say that to you. And we have to find ways to kindly challenge that without invalidating their experience or their thoughts and beliefs about why they hurt. Because that's an art, too. That's not what this talk is about. I can't train you to, to not step in it, because I still do it. When I say step in it, I mean trying to educate someone differently, and then it's just invalidating, and they don't want to talk to me ever again. That happens. But I've gotten better over the years. Okay, so how do we change the narrative? How do we, how do we stop Dr. Oz from squishing donuts? Did anyone see that clip? Oh, I, you should look it up. He's got this little segment on back pain and little tips you can do to not hurt anymore. And he has this tube that he's constructed full of jelly donuts. He's got a plunger and he just goes, see, this is what happens when you sit. And it all splooges. I'm not kidding, it's terrible. And this is the kind of stuff that the public sees. And these are images that you can't, you can't unsee. All right? But can we give an alternative story about that that's true to the science we have about how the body works? Explain pain, Mosley and Butler, also great. If you haven't read their books, I encourage you to do it. But set aside like a whole summer to get through Explain Pain Supercharged. I'm still not through it. Oh, but instead of discs, just the word, disc has a, an image. We're trained to understand what that means. And therefore, the physical properties of a disc are inherently entwined with the meaning of that word. And logically, then, when we bend over, if we think a disc is in there, it's going to splooge, right? That's, that's normal. That's natural. But that's not actually how they're shaped in there. They're not. They are multi-layer, woven, cross-fibrous, all these wonderful, supportive structures that act a little bit more like a parachute distributing the weight across multiple twines at the same time, right? Um, it's a force transducer, and it's living and adaptable, which is why so many people that don't hurt have bulging discs. And I like to show pictures like this to my patients, maybe not with barbed wire, but sometimes that's the right one. But this tree goes on to live a very happy, healthy life, despite having to grow around something foreign. Right? And so you're people who've had lumbar fusions, who are worried about the hardware. Yes, it's possible for it to migrate. Yes, it's possible that that causes a great deal of pain. But when you see someone who's been checked by their surgeon and rechecked and rechecked, and the surgeon's like, it's stable in there, and your person still hurts, could you help them reconceptualize what the body's capable of doing and then explain more of the physiology of the, all the factors that can contribute to a pain experience instead of just the structure? All right? So don't change what you do. Change how you think about it. Change how you talk about it. Use plausible narratives. And when I say plausible, I mean 
If you don't know the science about pain, all the immunology publications, you don't have to read all of them. I didn't. But the principles and the concepts, you have to understand in order to explain this in a way that's, uh, that's um, acceptable to people you're treating and in a way that you can then truly understand and believe yourself. Uh, so consistent with pain science and plausible biologically, right? So we know that exercise helps knees that are osteoarthritic. So does it always hurt them and cause degenerative changes? Not sure. Offer opportunities to change, right? If you say to somebody, well, just start bending over and you'll feel fine. That's really scary to some people. Can you test it with them? Can you have them experiment a little bit? Can you give them a plan that will let them change a bit by bit and come back and tell you how it's going? Uh, you may not have that luxury in primary care, but maybe you do. Maybe you have that relationship with your patients. Physical therapists certainly can. And I love this, no movement should be off limits forever. That's a Greg Lehman quote. And if you don't know Greg Lehman, he is a, he is a biomechanics research kind of, I'm going to say guru, he would hate me for that and love me at the same time. But he's published a lot on biomechanics, and he's the first to tell you it's the biomechanics research that actually argues against biomechanics as a plausible reason for pain. So no movement should be off limits forever. Do we need to unload temporarily? Perhaps. That helps. That can be really good. Certainly in an acute injury phase. Absolutely, our bodies do that naturally anyway. But a forever thing? No. It's usually more about um, uh, really habitual patterns of protection that our musculoskeletal system have adapted over time that are now problematic. And wherever you can, whatever you say, please try to empower self-management. Because if I say to somebody, I'm going to do a manipulative therapy on you today, and I expect you to feel better, and then I expect that this will happen over time, if that person gets told that it's a short-term thing and it's a nervous system uh, change that's occurring and not a structural change that's occurring, then I teach them how to build on that and maybe teach them self-strategies at home so they can keep getting better and finding windows where they feel better to move. That's great. Leads to independence. If I, other, on the other hand, say, I'm going to re-align uh, re your pelvic and, uh, how many people do this? I'm, I don't want to offend the crowd. I totally did the pelvis alignment thing, and I did the muscle energy thing, and the push and the pull, and I'm getting things back in line, and you feel better? Well, that person walks out of my office feeling great, but two weeks later needs to come see me again, right? And the narrative is in there, and it makes sense to the person feeling it, and it makes sense to the therapist doing it, but that's, that's actually faulty reasoning because the nervous system did that. I did not rearrange the pelvis with my hands. It's not possible. It's been looked into in the research, okay? So just check your beliefs. I had to do it, and like I said, it's not easy. Persistent pain is about the nervous system. Try to use that language, nervous system talk. Nervous system talk, right? What does the biomechanics of your knee do to your nervous system? Are we over-challenging the peripheral nociceptors using this gait pattern? Can we change that? But What's it doing to the nervous system rather than the joint, right? And there may be reason to talk about joints too, but I'm trying to broaden your perspective. Here is a nice little table, great publication recently put out there by Mike Stewart and colleagues. And Jared Hall, I'm going to plug his book. He just finished a book uh, called Sticks and Stones. It's a lot about patient education. But here are some alternatives. And I dare you to not use any of these words on the left for one week. I dare you. It's hard. All right? We're almost done. Tiny house, I'm going to skip that because we're out of time. I'll give it to you later. But basically, I try to tell people how 
uh, how nerves can get into a place where they're happy as clams in their tiny little spaces like stenosis. Neuroforaminal narrowing doesn't always hurt, right? But we blame that when we see it on an, Im an image if somebody comes to your office reporting pain. But how is it possible that people have all these degenerative changes, age-related changes, and they don't hurt? How is that possible? Because it's a slow adaptive process, and pain can happen because of a sudden change in your stress chemistry, perhaps, or your body tension, or your sleep, which changes your nervous system in other ways, right? So steroid injections can help if those chemical imbalances are present. <laughs> we don't always need a laminectomy, right? We know. That's why people get better without. But it's not just the injection. The procedural intervention is a window. It's not the answer. It just gives enough of a break to then help your in-laws find their own place to stay when they come to visit. <laughs> right? But movement, healthy diet, good sleep, stress management, those are all really important from a nervous system standpoint. So if you explain procedural <laughs> interventions from a nervous system standpoint, it's easier. So uh, people like the word pinched. Things get pinched. It's scary. But you know what? Your elbows are getting pinched right now. The ulnar nerve is getting pinched if you're resting on your hands. And they're fine with it, right? They're fine with it. They crab at you a little bit if you stay there for 25 minutes, but that's their job. The system's job is to say, move me a little bit. So you do, right? But people get really, really worried if it hurts so bad that you move there. They think they're splicing it. And that's not an exaggeration. So train your colleagues. How do you do this? It's not easy. If you start a little bit at a time, and I, and I tried to provide very direct feedback to some colleagues that doesn't go over very well because these are adult brains that have invested a lot of time in the beliefs that we've constructed, and that's logical, that's normal, that's okay. So my strategy is to talk to patients in front of my colleagues whenever I can and use language and repeat it again and again and ask the patient to repeat it back. You can also train your patients. This is the last slide, almost the last. Uh, this is a great website. If you haven't seen that video, go watch tamethebeast.org. Great little video. And these questions are there. This is what you can say. Hand it to the patient. Ask the next person who works with you to answer these questions for you. That'll get the clinician thinking differently, right? Just if we start little seeds at a time, things can change. So I'm not asking you to change how you were trained, but maybe reconceptualize what that training really can teach you and how that, mean, uh, how, uh, how that associates with pain and what your treatments are doing to the nervous system because that's really king when it comes to pain. So the references are there minus the millet one, I'm sorry. And I have time to stick around if anyone wants to ask questions, but otherwise, thanks for sticking overtime. So